0: Co worker of yours. Uh, always fun to travel in on a holiday weekend. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Welcome to our program here on The Fan. Hopefully, you have nice plans on tap for this Labor Day weekend. You can enjoy it safely with family or friends. Joining us appropriately enough at this time of the year, Rick Posner. His background's in the field of education. He's going to share some insights with us. Contained in Lives of Passion, School of Hope, he taught for 30 years at Jefferson County, Colorado Public Schools, was an assistant principal of the Open School, and his perspective I think is a good one. Maybe we'll get some insights as well for those of us who work in the field of education. Welcome to our program, Rick. Thanks for having me, Bob. In uh, beginning this discussion, I'll ask the simple question that um, a lot of people have listened to discussions that I've done on this program, especially in the past year probably are familiar with it's a very simple question that starts us off this book at this time in your career why was it important to do this
2: well it was important for me for a lot of reasons uh... uh a, a lot of personal reasons as well um, uh, as you know from my background I, I taught for many years in conventional school settings and uh, when i came to the open school as a, as a transfer teacher in the 80s it really saved me as a teacher and as an educator and uh, really uh, turned my life around so in a personal way it's, uh, it's important for me to give back to a, a place that uh, transformed me um, i think in a political social context it's important now because i think we're hitting a dead end uh with our uh, so-called educational reform uh methods uh, i think no child left behind is uh, headed for a wall uh, i think people are starting to uh, uh uh react to it there's a backlash going on uh and i think what we're really doing is leaving a lot of kids behind so i think it's important to uh, for us to look at uh, some alternatives Uh, in public schools uh, to the one-size-fits-all option that's becoming more standardized and uh, narrowing the curriculum every day the curriculum gets narrowed when it should be expanded so we need some examples of some schools that have worked that are out of the box and I think I've provided one here
0: All right, let's go back to the very beginning of that answer and I appreciate you being as frank as you were in providing us with that answer you mentioned the fact that this saved you what do you mean exactly by that term saved you
2: well you know i think um i was at a point with uh teaching i was a special ed teacher in a, in a, in conventional school settings uh some of them large public schools um, and uh what i felt like in those settings was uh, a defense attorney for my kids uh... i was really beating my head uh... against the wall trying to defend and advocate for these kids who just didn't fit into this uh, one-size-fits-all system and um, i was getting frustrated by it i was a good teacher um, i really loved my kids and uh... really uh, uh, advocated strongly for them uh but i didn't believe in uh beating our heads against the wall against the system that uh, that just seemed empty to me uh it was all based on standardized testing and grades and uh, so little of it was really based on the uh the personal and social aspects of the kids it was all teacher centered um it was really a, a, a forecast of the way things uh, have become uh, in education. I could see where things were heading So I was uh, really at the, at, at the end of the line, and like a lot of kids who don't fit into the system, I ended up coming to the open school as a person who uh, felt the same way. I felt like I was a refugee from the conventional school system. And what I found at the uh, open school was a... a a family and a community of learners where everyone was a learner and everyone had special needs and everyone was uh, taken seriously as uh, part of the community and so it really changed me around and it, uh, it it showed me it showed me what the possibilities were and it also gave me a family to belong to which was so important to me
0: at the time you yourself why did you I mean, this kind of sets, um, maybe in a way, sort of the basis for some of our discussion. I always like to try to get as much information for people listening to us, as well as for myself, in discussions like this. Why did you first go into education?
2: Well, you know, I I sort of went in through the back end. I was one of those uh, uh, kids from the 60s uh... that was rebelling against everything uh... i was from a fairly affluent family from the midwest uh... i went to university of wisconsin during the sixties you can imagine what that was like a very political place, uh... and uh... you know a lot of things going on politically and socially at that time and uh... i sort of ran away you know from it all and came out to Colorado and um, and um, just wanted to uh, um, you know make it on my own so to speak um, and I became a bus driver I was a college graduate but I really wasn't prepared to do anything or uh, uh, trained to do anything I had a degree in sociology I became a bus driver I became a janitor I took what jobs I could get in the community I was living in and um, through, uh, ironically, through uh, bus driving and janitorial work, I was in schools. I was working for school districts. Um, and I was hanging around kids. And I realized that I liked kids, and I got along well with kids. So I had the idea of going back and getting my teacher's degree, uh, or my uh, uh, teacher's certificate, uh, and um, uh, becoming a teacher. So it was sort of a back-end way of doing it. Um, And I think I got into teaching for the the reasons that most people get into teaching, that you like kids, and you like to get along with kids, and you like to get to know kids. Not so much that you love math, if you're a math teacher. I mean, that's that's important, too. But uh, the kids come first.
0: And when you think of what you gained from the experience with the Jefferson County Open School. One area where I want to focus our discussion is there's a lot of different things that you cover in this book, but what is it that you think you gained as knowledge about the way that students learn best?
2: Well. You know, part of it sort of reinforced what I did well as a teacher before I came to the open school, but uh, didn't have the system behind me uh, to back me up in what I was doing, uh, and that is that kids learn uh, best from people that they care about and that and people that care about them. I think that's putting it in a nutshell, uh, but that... Uh, Really, the personal and social aspects of learning are so important, and they're so often uh, ignored. I think, uh, Bob, I think what really happens is uh, uh, the elementary model itself is pretty good the way it stands, where you get to know one teacher pretty well, and you know who you can go to uh, if you have a problem. But then the message uh, at the middle school juncture, when we transition to middle school, is usually, uh, listen, the fun and games are over now. The affective part of education is over now. Uh, we got to get serious now about academics. And really, it's exactly at the wrong time to give that message. Uh, adolescents are the ones who really need uh, a lot of that affective uh, uh, feedback, and, and they need relationships, positive relationships with uh, adults at the school. And, um, you know, as we know, so often these kids are coming from families where they don't have uh, any positive relationships. Um, and schools can pro- provide these things, and, and that's the hook for learning. That's the part of learning that uh, really comes alive and makes it personal. When you help kids find out who they are and help them make sense out of their world, not just to throw uh, facts and uh, dates at them, Mm.
0: and part of the way in which the open school functions as I understand it is not relying on giving credits or giving grades that'll shock some people some people some people would be thrilled by that idea (laughs) believe me and there probably are some teachers that would be thrilled by that idea as well um How is that received? And the other aspect of that, naturally, is then how does that affect kids when they move on to higher education?
2: Yeah, well, you know, how is it received? I mean, that's that's interesting because, uh, you know, the open school is a school of choice. And again, I talk about options in the the public schools. There should be more of them, lots more of them. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of the options these days are back-to-basics kinds of academies you know where the focus is entirely on academics Uh, we need more options uh, and um, in our public schools that's for sure so how it's received uh, you know it's received by the people who come to the school because they make a choice to come there it's a school of choice and it's usually a philosophical choice so they come knowing that this is a non graded school So, And remember that the school is a pre-kindergarten through 12th grade program. So we get to acculturate kids uh, very early in the idea that uh, they will not be getting letter grades or credits. Um, So the whole idea is to to, um, develop this love of learning that does not depend on other directed kinds of assessments. Um, that really what we're trying to develop is this intrinsic sense of motivation and uh, self-assessment that really uh, when you become an adult that's uh, what uh, a lot of people struggle with is uh, you know you don't have somebody looking over your shoulder all the time and giving you grades you you really have to take a good look at yourself and be self-reflective and and uh, self assessing.
0: Rick Posner is talking with us on our program this morning. I'm Bob Salter and Ligorious Long Talking Golf after our 7 o'clock update this Sunday morning. We're in discussion with Rick Posner in this portion of our program. Rick is the author, as I mentioned at the beginning of our program, of Lives of Passion School of Hope. Before we uh, paused, you were talking about the fact that one of the uh, challenges we face as adults is this whole idea of the importance of being, as you put it, self-reflective.
2: And those are some of the, of the major skills of successful people. Uh, Stephen Covey, in his book, The Seven Traits of Successful People, talks about self-assessment all the time. So that whole culture of not having grades and uh, uh, doing some self-assessment um, is there to begin with. And so it's accepted by the people who make the choice to come there. Uh, Of course it looks strange from the outside looking in. Uh, And then the other part of your question was what happens to these kids when they want to go to college or they want to get into programs where they usually require grades and grade point averages. Well I have a whole section on that in the book uh, with college and and, um, the the truth is that they end up getting into the schools that they want to get into. Uh, Sometimes it's tricky but what they do is they write their own transcripts in other words they write a narrative transcript of everything they've done at the school in um... usually put into the framework of growth personal growth themes. so admissions counselors at colleges get a a very uh... in-depth uh... look uh... and personal uh... look at the kids who are applying and um, Bob, you know, really over the years, over the last 10, 15 years, colleges have become uh, more focused on that. Um, they've uh, looked at portfolios. They want to hear what the kids do outside of school. At the open school, that's what kids do inside of school. What uh, most people call extracurricular, we call the curricular. Um, they really want to get to know all about someone who's applying. These days. So the trend has been in our favor. But I'm not saying there haven't been problems, Uh, and we've had to do some hard work with admissions people. But uh, it's paid off in the end.
0: When you use the term that there, or the statement that there should be more options in public schools, do you see any indication that that is happening? You
2: know, I think slowly but surely, uh, we do see that with, you know, with the charter school laws and the proliferation of charter schools, that's been a, that's been a, a boon to our uh, progressive movement. Uh, it's, been, it's provided lots of opportunities. I think um, at the same time, we've been fighting against the trend towards standardization, and towards high-stakes testing. So it's sort of a mixed bag with the charter schools. As I said, I, I, what I'm afraid of is that most of the charter schools are these back-to-basics academies uh, that, uh, in my opinion, go the wrong way. But I think what the hope is that um, there's starting to be this backlash uh, against the No Child Left Behind. And I think what people will be looking for and seem to have started looking for are schools that uh, pay attention to their kids and uh, spend some time getting to know their kids, uh, because as we all know, kids kids are all smart and all have talents, and and uh, you know with multiple intelligences uh, and the discussion about different kinds of intelligences. Uh, you know, we're looking at a lot of kids being uh, ignored and made to be invisible uh, because of this uh, uh, this uh, uniform, uh, homogenous uh, way of looking at education. So I think that I think there's hope there, and one, I think that's part of the trend now.
0: One of the things that struck me most in um, reading this work. And for those who've just joined us in our discussion, we're talking with uh, Rick Posner uh, on our program, talking with him about uh, the book Lives of Passion School of Hope, how one public school ignites a lifelong love of learning. We go back back to 1999, an event that, when I mention the name everybody connects with in one way or another, the Columbine uh, Tragedy in Colorado. Share with people listening to us today exactly what happened with the student body of the open school.
2: Well, you know, um, uh, when such a tragedy occurs, and it was such a shock to everyone, uh, in the, in the uh, not just in the school system, but of course nationwide, the uh, first real graphic example of school violence uh took place in a very affluent part of Jefferson County, which is a large geographical county that stretches from rural to uh more urban kinds of settings. This was in one probably the most affluent area. Um it was a shock to everyone and um it was interesting to see how the uh, school system reacted. Um at least initially. Um and um you know, they had all these meetings and and um, and, and said, "What happened? How did this happen? And, uh, how did these kids uh, go under the radar? Uh, uh, why didn't we uh, Why didn't we know about this? Uh, that it was brewing?" And um, you know, they kept talking about uh, counseling systems. Uh, they actually used the word advising, and that's a, that's a word that's very sacred in the open school and always has been. Uh, and, and they were looking for answers that they already had uh, examples of at the open school, and that is the, the advising system where every, every student in the school has a personal advisor that they can go to about anything uh, and that they are accountable to and that the advisor is is accountable to them. Uh, You talk about accountability, that's it, right there. Uh, So no student at the open school goes unattended or uh, gets uh, the uh, chance to hide out like these Columbine Killer kids did. And the reason they were able to hide out was because they were good students. They got good grades, they got decent grades, they were college-bound, they were from good families um if they had gotten into trouble of course they would have uh you know seen an advisor or a, you know a counselor probably someone who didn't really know them but uh, they didn't really know who to go to in the school they felt alienated angry like so many kids do and uh they acted up obviously now the reaction was you know more metal detectors and more security guards uh, uh eventually that was the reaction so it was a reactive approach. It wasn't a proactive approach, obviously. Now, the open school, when that happened, uh, we took it very seriously and had school meetings about school violence. We talked about what was going on because our curriculum is based on the real world and things that happen. They become the curriculum. You don't just go back to your you know, uh, advanced algebra class when something like this happens. So the whole school got together in a... Uh, School governance at the Open School is uh, the, the, the students run the show. They run the governance meetings. They are the uh, governing body of the school. So they got the whole school together, K through pre-K through 12, and said, "Listen, we're going to make a uh, we're going to make a stand, uh, and we're going to we're going to have a march that commemorates uh, the victims of this violence." And we're going to show that we are supportive of the uh, victims and their parents and, uh, and that we, we come from a place that uh, we take this very seriously. And uh, what they did is they organized a march, and it was about five miles from the open school to, the, um, uh, to Columbine High School. And uh, they marched along the way, and uh, this is the whole school taking place, taking part in this and uh, no other school in Jefferson County took part because they did not want to spend time away from their curriculum. For us it was the curriculum. So it really made a statement about what what schools should be about and what they can be about.
0: It also made a statement in my mind about the way in which student government functions because a lot of the time, we've probably been used to the idea that student government was simply built around you know, campaigns, elections, and when you got right down to it, in most cases, was all about a popularity contest. Well, exactly. Here you're talking about student government dealing with real issues.
2: Oh, well, exactly. And and Bob, the, the, the powerful thing about the uh, uh, student governance at the open school is that uh, it's voluntary. Any kids who want to join student government can join. It's not an election. and uh, it, It's open to everyone. And they run all the meetings. And uh, the kids are even involved with hiring. Uh, hiring staff and uh, hiring the administrators. Uh, and they have an equal vote with the adults on the hiring committee. Now, that is real student power, but it takes a uh, you know a lot of faith and uh, a, a lot of belief in uh, and a lot of respect for student and their potential to be involved and to be in control of some things in their lives and to make some important decisions. And I think that's really what the school's all about.
0: Rick Posner is talking with us on our program on the fan this Sunday morning, and Liguori's Talking Golf is along after our 7 o'clock update. Rick is the author of Lives of Passion, School of Hope. In his background, he taught for 30 years at Jefferson County, Colorado Public Schools. He served as an assistant principal at the Open School uh, there as well. And um, pretty uh, insightful Perspectives that he is sharing with us on our program this morning, and Ligori is along talking golf after seven this morning. I'm Bob Salter. We are in discussion with Rick Posner on our program. In his background, he's had a background in education. One of the things that you've been involved in, you were assistant principal at the Open School, and it's an interesting concept with there because the students were actually involved in the um, formulation, implementation, the teaching in the classroom is that correct
2: you know students very very early on at the school get a chance to um... um you know at least organize some groups around uh... things they're interested in they may uh... The kids who are interested in music at uh, second grade level although we don't really use grade levels like that but at that age level would uh... Organize some some groups of like-minded kids around uh, music and uh have to do some presentations of um, music they were involved in or or liked or some things they knew how to do with uh, instruments or something. And then later on, of course, it it, it develops uh, as the passions and interests of the students develop, that they always have an opportunity to teach a class or organize a group around their interests with with the help of uh, a teacher as a guide. Um, and always with a, a sponsor or an adult. And a lot of the alumni that I talk about in the book, some of whom are, uh, are in their 50s now, say that that was one of the most valuable experiences at the school, the idea that they were allowed to uh, teach what they were uh, really passionate about and share that passion with others.
0: Mm. And... Keeping track of those alumni from the open school, what kind of areas, or is it diverse, that they focus in?
2: Uh, for vocations and, mm-hmm. and work, yeah, I, I think it's it's <laughs> you know it, somebody said, well, God, uh, thirty-five almost forty percent are in uh, the arts or education or social services, and I would say you know that that feels good to us as teachers uh because the whole school's about teaching and learning so we do have an uh what what looks to be a little lopsided uh amount of um, of alumni who are involved in teaching or or the arts uh you know things that are based on uh the learning process itself which they have uh, so much respect for now uh as adults uh and the arts because they were allowed to pursue some of those artistic uh passions of theirs without somebody saying hey now you know that's okay for a hobby but uh this you can't be serious about this because you'll never make a living doing this so uh i like i like the way it turns out i like the way it looks but we do have our share of uh workers we have uh, plumbers and uh um, you know, uh, construction workers, and we have uh, some doctors and some lawyers, and um, you know, our share of professionals and some business people. Um, so it it, it looks. Uh, I, I think it's a pretty good range.
0: Mm. When students graduate the open school and make that move into quote unquote the real world. What is that transition like? And, I mean, is there is there any sort of obstacle or obstacles that they commonly face?
2: Yeah, I think that they, uh, and I talk about that in the book, it's an interesting transition. Um, and, um, you know, I think that some of the difficulties are the result of uh, growing up in this uh, this um, very nurturing, uh, strong uh, community, uh, like, it's almost like having another family. Really, uh, the idea of it takes a village to raise a child, kind of thing. So when you lo- when you leave the village, so to speak, uh, you're entering a world that is not quite as personal, and uh, some people have different values. And uh, you've been in this, uh, this world where you've uh, had this shared sense of values about things. And it can be difficult. Uh, but what i found with the alumni is they, they all felt, or most of them felt, they had the strength of conviction in what they had experienced. And they had the love of learning and the idea that life is an adventure and that they're constantly rediscovering uh, the joy of learning and uh, and finding out more things about themselves and self-discovery kind of thing that uh, that's kept them uh, on an even keel. Not to say that it hasn't been difficult for them, um, because really, just the basic way of people relating to each other sometimes can be difficult to get used to uh, when you're when you're accustomed to being open and honest about things and talking about your feelings. So it it takes, uh, it can be sort of a shock to the system. But the core values are there to carry uh, the alumni on.
0: The voice of our guest in this portion of our program, uh, Dr. Rick Posner. Uh, He is the author of Lives of Passion, School of Hope. Kind enough to be our guest uh, on our program. Thank you very much for uh, joining us and uh, hopefully... Uh, some of what you've shared may inspire some of the people listening to us to check out this book. Certainly the best with your work.
2: Thanks so much, Bob.
0: We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Kim Rosen. been looking forward to uh, speaking with Kim for some time. She's going to join us to talk with us about Saved by a Poem, The Transformative Power of Words. She's the author of uh, this presentation. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program.
1: Really happy to be with you, Bob. Simple question
0: to get us started. Um, putting together this work, two thoughts. One, what was this like for you? And secondly, why did you do this at this point in your life and your work?
1: What a great question. Putting it together, there's two answers of it. It was incredibly rewarding. Incredibly rewarding because I felt like it brought together all my years of work, which were seemingly in many different areas, they all came together in this one area of how to allow a poem to become a teacher of self-discovery for you. I'd been a therapist. I'd been a sort of explorer, pioneer of consciousness, done a lot of different kinds of spiritual work and inner work. I also, before that, was a director in the theater, and I taught acting. Before that, when I was a little child, I was a poet. (laughs) That happened very, very fertile until I got to high school, when all of a sudden it seemed that poetry had something to do with dactylic tetrameters and iambic pentameters. And all of a sudden my love of poetry disappeared. And I felt like poetry was this code that people in a secret club could crack, but I wasn't part of it. And so I gave up on poetry. I went into theater, and then, as I say, I went into consciousness. And um, to answer your second question, the reason I write it now is that in 1994, as Pablo Neruda says, um, and it was at that age, poetry arrived in search of me. I was in a very, very dark depression, and All of my studies and discoveries in the fields of psychology and spirituality somehow could not touch the place I was living in myself at that time, and as you can imagine, it was a huge despair because I was a teacher of self-discovery, and yet I could not discover how to free myself from this depression. and. I had one of those experiences that you know you can only call a miracle. Where one day, as I was cleaning my house, I found this battered cassette tape with no name on it. Threw it in the cassette tape recorder. I don't know if your listeners remember those things. Oh but my
0: goodness, they weren't even a lot of them weren't even
1: born. Or even that alive, time. right? Cassette
0: tape recorder. You're talking about technology yeah. from the last century.
1: Right? I know. I know. We have to study history here. Threw it in the cassette tape recorder, and this voice. Speaking poetry filled my house. And it was speaking a kind of poetry. This man was speaking a breed of poetry that I had never been taught in, in high school or college. And it was a breed of poetry that spoke directly to where I was in myself then. And the man's name was David White. He lives in America now, but he was brought up in England. Um, his mother was Irish and his father was Welsh. And so he had this whole background of poetry, you know, in every other country in the world, I would say. I know that's a great claim, but it's possibly true. Poetry is much more central to the culture than it is in America. So David had been learning poems by heart throughout his whole life. And I decided I would do that, not really thinking anything other than I was completely uncreative in every way in my life at the time. And so I figured I'd use my will to memorize poetry. And what I didn't realize would happen, but what did happen, was that these poems that I started to, I thought I would memorize them, I started to learn them by heart. The Buddhists call it writing on the bones. And they came so deeply into me that they were the healers that took my depression and opened it and introduced me to a healing process so that I was really healed from the inside out by these poems.
0: When you talk about poetry to people who, I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this, but for lack of a better term, say that they just don't relate to poetry. Mm -hmm. Some people will say they don't get it, you know, doesn't turn them on, whatever. What do you say
1: to them? Well, I love that question because, as I said, I have been one of those people for so many years. First thing I say is that I'm not so sure it's true, because most of these people who say, oh, I can't relate to poetry, I just don't understand it. I open up The New Yorker and I look at those poems and I go, wow, what does this mean? And yet, there are prayers, there are psalms, there may be texts from the Bible or the Quran or the Talmud that speak to people. There may be lyrics from from songs. Listen to this: Moons and June's and Ferris wheels, the dizzy dancing way you feel when every fairy tale turns real. I've looked at love this way. You know, we we most of us know that as. The lyrics uh, from both sides now by Joni Mitchell, there are songs that we play over and over because we love the lyrics, and all of these are poems. Every scripture was written in poetry to begin with, every prayer, every psalm, every lyric. So I think most of us do relate to poems, but we just don't call them poems. And the other thing that I find very interesting is that, especially I think in America, we have somehow gotten the idea that we're supposed to understand poetry with the left side of our brain. You know, the left side is the side that's dedicated to linear, practical, factual thought. And the right side of the brain is the side that's dedicated to image, to feeling, to relating, to the ineffable, you know?
0: Kim Rosen sharing some interesting thoughts on poetry with us on this subject. Uh Labor Day weekend morning. Hopefully, as I mentioned earlier in our program, you have some nice plans on tap for this uh, holiday weekend. Uh, One of the nice things about this weekend, and especially about Sunday morning, and it has been a very nice occurrence throughout this summer, hopefully you've been enjoying as well, Ann Liguori's Talking Golf program. Um, That's long after our top-of-the-hour update. Uh, Here this morning, a lot of us have certainly picked up perhaps a renewed or in some cases a new passion uh, for the sport um, as we listen and learn and enjoy, too, Um, Anne's conversations uh, surrounding the uh, topic and the sport of uh, golf and also just feeling the passion that um, she has for the sport too comes through loud and clear hopefully by now you have downloaded the radio.com app so you don't have to miss any editions of that program or anything else that happens here on the fan that's going to do it for our program hopefully you will have a great rest of your holiday weekend and we'll see you next sunday morning here on the fan